the psychiatrist said, this is a textbook example of bipolar disorder. I, I thought I was dead. I thought my life was over. I thought that I had nothing to offer society and that I was really just waiting to die somewhere. Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, from depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, good evening and welcome to The Depression Files. I am very excited. I've got Gabe Howard, a bipolar speaker, writer, and podcaster on the air with us tonight. Gabe, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Al. I appreciate it. So I'm really excited, Gabe. I've had the opportunity of meeting you at least on a couple of occasions at conferences. Therefore, I got to... Um, you know, get to know you a bit. And uh, oftentimes on this show, I have complete strangers. So uh, it's nice to have somebody on the show. You're not the first, but somebody who uh, I have acquaintance with. Uh, don't worry. I'm definitely stranger. You just know me. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, we originally met at uh, Healthy Voices Conference, which uh, is coming up again in uh, April. And yeah. I believe you're going again. I am. I'll be there. You yeah. going to be there? I am going to be there. I'm very excited. So the listeners may have heard, because I'm sure I've mentioned this before, I've had one or two other conference attendees on the show. Healthy Voices is put on by Janssen, a division of Johnson & Johnson. They're pharmaceutical. They don't push their products at us at the conference, which is really pretty cool. And it's their way of giving back to the community. And uh, it's all online advocates of chronic illnesses. And you and I are both there as representation of the mental uh, mental illness community. Yeah. What I really like about it is that it's not just mental health. You know, for a long time I spent, you, you know, my, my money because I didn't have, you know, a lot of it. You got to be you got to be, you know, thrifty <laughs> uh, if you're going to be an online advocate because it, it doesn't doesn't pay very well. And I went to a lot of mental health stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of stuff for like the National Alliance on Mental Illness or Mental Health America or Depression Bipolar Support Alliance. And what those things have in common is it's it's all mental illness, all mental health. And, you know, I, I show up at this Healthy Voices conference and, you know, obviously I'm in the room at mental health. I ran into Al. He's mental health. And then we start running into like, you know, people in the diabetes space, HIV space, uh, you know, cancer and just on and on and on, you know, colostomy. And I was like, oh, my God, we all have so much in common, even though we're representing all these different disease spaces. We we still had this this fundamental core of uh, we're living with an illness and we don't have enough information or resources and we're scared. And that made me feel really good as somebody living with mental illness, because I, I thought the reason that I was scared was because people hated people with mental illness. But then I learned that, no, people just hate sick people. So that was awesome. <laughs> what an awesome piece of learning you took away from that conference, Gabe. It, it really is an amazing conference. It's all folks who are online advocates. And like you said, all different types of illnesses. The amount of energy at that conference is phenomenal. 
and I think it just breeds people who care, right? I mean, so many of the advocates not only talked about their chronic illness, but also about social justice, also about GLBTQ issues and concerns, poverty, um, just uh, amazing uh, people at that conference. So I'm really excited to be going back this April. I mean, you know, they're amazing because you're there. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, exactly. It's people, it's people like Al. <laughs> so if people haven't picked up on this yet, Gabe is known for his humor. Not always the best humor, but definitely humor. Oh, <laughs> just oh. kidding, Gabe. Just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, hey, Gabe, I read that uh, your first official diagnosis happened in 2003. Is that right? Yeah, all the way back then. 2003. About how old were you at the time? 25 years old. And uh, this was your first official diagnosis, but you think you had been living with bipolar disorder for a long time? Oh, yeah. The the moment I was diagnosed, it, it couldn't have been more obvious that that I was I, I was suffering from bipolar disorder as, as far back as probably, you know, 13, 14, 15 years old. My mother always used to joke that I was her Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde child because my emotions and mood swings were all over the place. They just didn't know that it was, uh, you know, a part of a disorder or an illness. They just they, they just frankly, they just thought I was a jerk. Uh, they, they thought that it was, you know, hormones or teenage angst or they, they, they thought that it was a behavioral issue and that punishment would fix it. And, and you can see how this this was not helpful at all. I mean, I, I wish that my parents could punish the symptoms of mental illness out of people because one, they just be rich. They would just travel the country grounding mentally ill people. And, you know, after two to three weeks of no TV, uh, you'd be fine. Uh, this, this is, it just didn't work. It's, it's not the case. It was, it it was, it was just terrible what me and my family went through because we just didn't know. We really just didn't know. Can you give, uh, some examples when you were that young? So early teens, and obviously it sounds like it's much more than just mood swings. I mean, how severe did it get? Oh, it, it got, it got really severe. Here's, here's like some examples of what was going on in the Howard household back when I was a kid. So I would stay up for two, three days at a time and I would stay up because it was manic. You, you know, I was up, I had all this energy, there was all this excitement and I just, I just, I would, I would just have the most grandiose thoughts and ideas and it was electrifying and, uh, you know, luckily my parents were looking out for me so I couldn't do too much damage, but what they would see was this highly energized, highly confident, highly intelligent child <laughs> just, just, just doing and doing and doing and doing then fast forward, you know, the three or four days and I would crash. I would cry. You can't keep that up. I would fall down exhausted and the depression would set in and I'd, I'd be thinking about suicide and I, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And I hated myself and I hated everybody. And I just want to, I just want to sleep. Now that was, that wasn't from my perspective, from my parents' perspective, I stayed out partying for three days and now I didn't want to go to school because I was too tired. So you can see where in their mind, they're like, look, you made a bad decision. You wanted to stay up all night with your friends and now you're going to pay the price for it. Get the hell out of bed and go to school. So, you know, my parents' big sin was they wanted their son to go to school, but it was so much more than any of that. But, you know, we, we didn't know. And th th this cycle would repeat and they're just, they're just thinking to themselves, why is our kid so stupid that he doesn't realize that when you stay up for two days, you're going to be tired. 
And I would think to myself, why am I so stupid that I don't realize that if I stay up for two days, I'm going to be tired. So I just felt badly that I wasn't learning this lesson because, you know, I got a brain in here. I, I'm, I'm not a stupid person. And I, what they were saying made perfect sense. If you stay up, you will crash in a couple of days and you'll be tired. But I, I couldn't sleep if I wanted to. I'd try. I'd lay down. I, I, I didn't want to be a bad kid, you know, and, and you know, my parents are good people. People are always shocked. They're just like, well, your parents are divorced, right? No. Your dad beat you and was an alcoholic, right? No. Your mother was dismissive and aloof. Nope. None of that stuff was going on in my household. I had good parents who loved each other and loved me and loved my siblings. We just couldn't figure out what was going on because we didn't know. And when we just you, didn't know. When you say you were up for two or three days straight, that is literally like zero sleep for three days straight, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and then you're just yeah. running on adrenaline, I would imagine. You're, you're running on mania. You're running, yeah, yeah a, a adrenaline, mania. I mean, that's that's what it is. Your, your brain is just pumping you full of this idea that you can do it. You can do it. And and when you lay down, your brain is like, no, what, what, what's going on here, dude? You're, you're wasting it. You're wasting it. It, it just, it just doesn't work. Uh, you, you know, it, I, I tell people, I'm like, think of like a sleepless, sleepless night that you had, you know, just for any reason, because maybe you were worried about something and your intellectual brain is like, you need to get some sleep, but for whatever reason you can't, you, you know, maybe you're worried about a loved one or you're worried about what you have to do in the morning, or maybe it's because of illness. Maybe you can't sleep because you're coughing every two minutes. So the intellectual part of you knows that you'd be better off if you slept, but your body or your mind is fighting you. But this happened to me repeatedly. And oh, this wasn't like a one shot deal. Uh, this happened over and over and over again. And we didn't catch on to the pattern. They just thought that I was a stupid kid, apparently, and that I was a slow learner. And that what they needed to do was punish me more. Right. And, and it, it didn't work out. And when you said you would cycle through it, so you'd have a mania and then you said you'd crash and hit a major depression, it sounds like. And w once you got through that depression, how long until your your next mania and how often were these cycles? See, that's that's the that, that's kind of the thing of it. You know, I, I if it could have had some established pattern, maybe we would have noticed you know, people describe bipolar disorder as extreme highs and extreme lows. And, and that is accurate, but incomplete. See, bipolar disorder is extreme highs and extreme lows and vacillating back and forth on that spectrum. And, and here's why this is relevant, because sometimes you'll be in the middle. And the middle looks stereotypical. It's it's normal. I make an air quote for people who can't see through their speakers. Uh, but but that that's... That, that middle of the road, that stereotypical, that normal is when you start getting good grades. It's when you get the job. It's, it's when you make those lasting friendships and relationships. And it, it, it's when you do all of the things that you put in jeopardy by cycling up or cycling down. But more importantly, during that time is when your friends and family look at you and they say, look, he can do it if he wants to. He can, he can, he can, he can obey us. He can, he can make good decisions if he wants to. We saw it. Right. And they don't recognize it. And, you know, it, it's just like an engineering. The hardest problem to fix is an intermittent one. Yeah, exactly. How, uh, just how bad was the depression? The depression was awful. I, I thought about suicide. I, 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 I would be 
so depressed I would not be able to move. And when I say I can't move, people are like, well, you had to move to go to the bathroom. I'm like, nope, got you covered. Piss the bed. Uh, it, it, that's that's just what it was. I didn't care. I, I laid in my own filth. I, I would vomit and just lay in it. I would just cry and not shower for days. And it, it, it just frankly, every bad thing that happened to me as a result of not being able to move felt good because it was a punishment. I deserved it. I, I, I deserved to, uh, you know, urinate on myself. I deserved to throw up. I deserved to reek and to stink and to lay in my own sweat. It just, that, that actually felt kind of appropriate because that's, that's what depression does to you. It just, it makes you feel like whatever God awful thing is happening is right. That's this, what you deserve. This was through your teen years. This was this was through my my teen years, my my twenties, my yeah. And you would literally, I mean, you're talking literally, throw up in bed, and and you'd be laying in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I just I I would uh, I you know I, I it's I I I guess to to be a little fair, I mean I wouldn't puke on my own pillow. I, I mean I I want to set the stage correctly. I mean I'd lean over the side of the bed or you, you know I'd throw up in the middle of the bed. I mean I I you know I'd try to move around it. I I'm not. I, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I don't want you exaggerating <laughs> on this show, Gabe. Let, let's be honest here. I, I just oh been, my but goodness. I'm, you know I that I really try awful. to set the 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 mood correctly. I, I mean it's just you you just. I tell people, have you ever been so physically sick that you just don't care anymore? I mean, think about like being in a hospital or or think about, you know, just having the flu so bad that the snot is dripping down your, your face and you're just like, you know what? I, I don't care. I'm so sick. I don't care. That's what that's what really severe depression is like. You know, like, why were you not worried that you were laying in your own filth? And I'm like that. That's that's just another problem for another moment. I, I was trying to not die. I was trying to get the energy to keep breathing or I was trying to get the energy to will my heart to stop. It, it just depends on the moment or the second. I, I really think that I'm alive today because I couldn't find a way to kill myself that was quick and easy. Uh, all of the ways that I came up with to die when I was really sick, they, they actually involved effort. They involved getting up and doing something. I was too depressed. I, Frankly, to, to, to put it as, as bluntly as I can, I was too depressed to kill myself. Right. I did not have the energy to end my own life. Right. You mentioned the manias as lasting two to three days. How about the depressive episodes that would follow? Well, so the we, we should, you know, not all not all experiences are equal. You know, some manias would last weeks. Now, now in those weeks, I, I would get sleep here and there. I didn't stay, I never stayed up for, you know, two, three, four, five weeks straight. The the most I ever stayed up would be, uh, you know, two or three days uh, before my body would physically give out and I would crash, but then I would wake up still manic, okay. um, you know, or sometimes I would, I would crash and wake up depressed. Uh, there was no rhyme or reason to them. You know, I, I had a, a manic state between, you, you know, hypomania and mania it probably lasted close to a year. And then I had, uh, you know, severe depression that, that lasted close to, you know, a, a month. And, you know, a month is a long, long time to be severely depressed. Oh, yeah. 
but again, I, I I always try to remind people that there's this there's this little spectrum. You, you know, there's a difference between being you, you know depressed, but you can take a shower, put your clothes on, and go to work. You just you just don't want to, but you're still finding a way to inch forward and being so depressed that you're laying in your own filth. Uh, and and it just it it just it, this is the kind of thing that just really messes with a person's head that has bipolar disorder. This idea that your brain can survive thinking that you are king of the world, that you are God and that you are the greatest thing and that everybody should bow down to you. And then within, you know, hours, days, weeks, or months can fall all the way down to you are garbage. And if you had the power to turn your heart off, you would. How can the same brain and the same body survive that? And it, it it just it messes with you on a on a, a psychological level that I, I cannot accurately explain. And it it's it's painful, uh, both psychologically and and physically painful. How are you doing at school at this point? I mean, were you getting to school typically? And would you be missing large chunks of school because of the mental illness? Yeah, I, I missed large, large chunks of school. In fact, I dropped out of high school and my parents didn't notice. My parents didn't notice because, I, well, frankly, to put it bluntly, I went to a shitty school. The, the the teachers were tired of me. They didn't want to deal with me. They were They were relieved that I wasn't there. I was relieved that I wasn't there. Nobody told them. And frankly, I thought I was going to get caught when my report card came out. But my report card came in and I had really good attendance and good grades. I don't know how it happened, but it did. And that that covered this up for a long, long time. In fact, the only reason that my parents figured out that I wasn't going to school is because in a fight, I blurted it out. I blurted it out, calling them so stupid that they didn't realize that I wasn't going to school. And then they started investigating and that, then I got caught. That is really pretty shocking and sad to think um, that a school wasn't doing anything at that point. Yeah, I, I went to a god-awful school. I, I I cannot tell you how awful this school was. I On one hand, I have fond memories of my neighborhood. But you know how people say, like, I bought a house in a good school district? Well, in order for that statement to be true, which we all know it's true, people buy houses in good school districts all the time, that means by definition there have to be houses in bad school districts. Right. Yeah, my, my, my parents bought one of those. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> uh, so living this way, what was the final turning point? What finally got you to seek help? I ran into somebody who understood mental illness. She spotted the symptoms of depression. She spotted the symptoms of suicidality and she figured out that I had a suicide plan and I was planning on ending my life. And she approached me and said, are you planning on killing yourself? And I got excited because the answer was yes. And I thought I'm going to have some help. Uh, somebody's going to help me with this. See, I was worried that after I died, my mom wouldn't find all the paperwork, like the deed to the house and my insurance policy and, you know, all the things that she'd need to take care of things, you know, after I wasn't around anymore. I was I was trying to be helpful. I didn't I didn't want my family to be burdened by my death. So I was trying to get as much done as humanly possible so that they wouldn't have to do it because I, I figured they'd be pretty upset at having to do it. Uh, this is how my mind was working. So when she asked me if I was planning on killing myself, I was thrilled because I thought she was going to say, oh, that that's awesome. Let me help. I was like, this is this is wonderful. Uh, but she freaked out uh, and, and she was not um, happy. 
And she she just was like, oh, my God, we have to go to the hospital. And I was like, hospital? Why why the hell would we go to the hospital? I'm, I'm not sick. Sick people go to the hospital. And, you, you know, we, 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 we argued about this for a few moments. And she finally said, look, I'll, I'll tell you what, let's go to the emergency room and we'll ask the doctor if this is where you need to be. And the doctor will tell us who's right. And if you're right, I will take you to dinner anywhere in the city, my treat. So apparently, even in my depressed, delusional, and suicidal state, I still had the overwhelming desire to win an argument <laughs> and get a free meal. Was this a, a colleague or an acquaintance? Like, who was this uh, relation-wise? I, I always say that this was a woman I was casually dating at the time because this is a family show. But listen, it, it was it was it was just a woman that I was sleeping with. That, that's no disrespect. I mean, we were both doing the same thing. She's very nice woman, but you know, this wasn't a, a, a long term. This wasn't a family member. This wasn't a family friend. This wasn't a work person. This was, you know, this was just kind of a fellow traveler that I ran into along the way to kill time with, and. Uh, Thank God, uh, because she she figured it all out and she drove me to the hospital. And I, I bet you can figure out what happened next. <laughs> well, I'd love to hear from you what happened next. I have some uh, some guesses here. Uh, I'm thinking they uh, they probably kept you. Uh, you. You know that that's they did. <laughs> so you know we walked into the hospital and. Uh, she said, this is, this is my friend Gabe. He's planning on killing himself. And they, they started asking me questions and they put me in a room and a social worker came in and then, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the ER doctor came in and they, then they started talking about getting a, a, a psychiatrist to come in and evaluate me. But, but the, the thing that happened is uh, things happened and they, they happened systematically. They happened on a protocol. It was almost like they had done this before. And this, this really wrecked, it just wrecked my worldview because I was expecting nothing to happen. And the fact that they knew what to do and that they had a plan and that they were prepared at, at, at some point, I just, I just, I frankly just blacked out. I, I don't remember what happened after a certain point. I, I know what happened because I was told and I've pieced it together, but I, I did not know what happened. I was confused by what was happening. But yeah, they, they admitted me to the psychiatric hospital. I woke up the next morning uh, in a psychiatric ward. Later that morning, I would meet with a psychiatrist where I would be diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And uh, that's that's how it all happened. So a couple questions here. You mentioned uh, that you when you went in, you were delusional. What kinds of delusions were you having? I believed... One, I believe that demons were following me around and sort of messing with me. That That's really the best way that I can describe it. I, I felt that they were demons. Uh, I don't know what they look like because I never saw them. You know, that that's that's what delusions are. But they would just do things to mess with me. You know, they they, they would they would take my stuff or they'd, you know, make me late or they'd, you know, just just I, I don't know. They, they were kind of like evil minions, I guess. I mean, the, the minions are not exactly productive. You know, the minions in Despicable Me, the, the cute little yellow things, they're not really productive, but they kind of get in the way. So imagine if they're the evil minions where they're not really productive, but they get in the way and the things they get in the way of are important and meaningful to you. And they're just kind of scary. Uh, so, you know, they'd keep me up when I want to sleep. They, they'd make me do poorly at work. They'd they'd tell my friends that I was a bad person so that they would go away. They would cause my family not to love me. And just any bad thing that happened really, I, I felt, was because of this network of demons that were just, you know, frankly, screwing with me. 
And, and, and did you have audible uh, hallucinations? I mean, would you be hearing them? I, I never heard or saw them. It, it always stayed very much in the delusion category. Okay. Uh, so, but you know, sometimes I feel like it's it's quibbling a little bit, and I, I don't mean this in any disrespect to people who hear or see things, but. I didn't, I did not see them. And this is very important as far as diagnostic criteria, getting the right medications and getting the right help. But the thing is, is I didn't need to see them. I knew they were there. It it didn't matter if I saw them or not. You know, some people describe it. They're like, well, I saw the demon and that's how I knew it was there. And I'm like, well, I didn't see the demon, but I was a hundred percent sure it was there too. So our reactions were identical, even though, you know, that that's sort of the difference between the delusion and the hallucination, but the end result was the same. Yeah. I just didn't have a-, a face. Absolutely. And it doesn't mean you have any less bipolar or it's any less serious. Like you said, yeah. you were a hundred percent sure this was happening to you and, and it clearly wasn't, which, uh, is like you said, the effect. So yeah. were these delusions a piece of almost all of your manias or was this an extreme case? It, it's really hard to know where the delusions were and where they weren't. Right. Uh, you know, there, there's that, that that famous saying that that makes everybody laugh, and you know, we we we, uh, you know, I, I kind of say it in, in in mental illness and mental health circles a lot, just to be funny. But it's you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean people aren't out to get you. Right. Uh, <laughs> you, you know. D- it's really hard to know, you know, what's what and what's happening, and recall back and think about it because. Uh, you, you, you know, I, I don't know. Something convinced me when I was manic that I could do things like jump off roofs or talk to anybody or that I was invincible or that, you know, I, I could do all these drugs or alcohol without fear of repercussions. And and just I, I don't even know all of the dangerous behavior that I participated in because it's really hard to remember things when you're manic. Uh, I would see the credit card bills and that would kind of serve as a reminder. I would wake up ne- next to strangers and they'd tell me what we did the night before and you know they had no reason to lie. I knew that I I abused drugs and alcohol just because you know I'd, I'd find the leftover drugs and alcohol or you, you know track mark or just you, you know you'd have telltale physical signs of, of certain drugs that that I would do and I have some vague recollection but you know now we're starting to get into a point where you're delusional, you're manic, you're drunk and you're high. Right. Uh, and of course you've been up for three days. So that that's going to mess with you as well. It, it's was that you your know, pattern for many years? I mean, and you mentioned track marks. So, I mean, you were shooting up and doing some serious drugs. Yeah. And, but see, the thing is, is th- there wasn't enough to actually call it a pattern. The, again, okay. that's the messed up thing. Right. You, you know, I, I only ever did heroin once and not, not that that's, you know, I don't deserve a medal for this. Uh, but I, I, I was exactly- not going to offer yeah. you a medal, Gabe. <laughs> Just be clear but, there. Yeah, but I, I just, you you know, there, there's so much desperation with, with being that sick for that long with no treatment or even self-awareness. And I would be standing someplace at 3 a.m. And listen, when you're standing someplace at 3 a.m., it's not church. It's not the library. It's not productive. Productive people are asleep. Right, I, I, you right. know, and please don't write me and tell me that you have a night job and that you keep us safe. I, <laughs> I understand first responders and police officers. I'm just, in general, right, the right. places where I would go, you know, even bars are closed at 3 a.m. Yep. So, you know, I'm in some seedy places with some, some people who are just as sick and just as desperate as I am. And somebody would say, hey, do you want to do fill in the blank? And here's the thing that you need to know about people using drugs. 
they won't let you stay if you're not also using drugs. Mm. I don't know why, but that's a rule. You can't be <laughs> the only person not doing drugs in a room full of drug users. And I didn't want to leave. I was scared to leave or felt compelled to stay or who the hell knows. Right. And if if my cost of admission was to do whatever they were doing, you're in. Done. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned some big credit card bills and stuff. A lot I've um, interviewed several people with bipolar disorder and some of them had a particular um, vice. So like a couple of them gambled like all the time and they couldn't stop gambling and spending somebody. I don't think they were on this show, but I remember meeting somebody, who, a woman who said she went out and purchased a Harley Davidson and she had never ridden a motorcycle, but that was part of her mania or somebody woke up in Vegas, but they had never been there before. Do you have any stories that reach that type of extreme? Not, not to that extent. I, I, you know, I, I've heard a lot of those stories too. You know, we work in the same field. I, I was, I was really lucky, I think for a few reasons. And, and what I'm about to say is going to make people think, wow, he considers that luck. Uh, I weighed 550 pounds. So mobility was an issue. I, I could walk and everything, but you know, I wasn't going long distances. So the whole idea of like jumping an airplane and ending up someplace, I'd never really flown before. I, I didn't start flying until after I got well. So, uh, you know, I didn't come from a family that really flew or took vacation. So my, my first flight was after I was diagnosed and got help. So I, I think between how much I weighed and the fact that I just didn't have the, the natural proclivity for travel, meaning I didn't want to go, I think really cut that down. Uh, the other reason that I was really lucky, and again, I, this always makes people laugh, uh, the thing that I wanted more than anything was sex. I was hypersexual as all get out. So I didn't need to leave town. I, I hired uh, probably every hooker in Ohio. And uh, I, I don't say that as cavalierly as it comes out, but you, you know, I, I hired just a ton of sex workers because I, I was desperate. And if I couldn't find a sex worker, I found people who I could trade drugs and alcohol with for sex. Yeah. Um, well, and I again, and again, I mean, as you mentioned, it may sound a bit cavalier and at the same time, this is a part of your mental illness and how it manifested. It, it's so tough to walk the fine line between honestly regretting my past and not letting that regret wash into the future because the, the, the reality is, is, uh, you, you know, I, I, I regret everything. I, I wish to God that I could have gotten help. I wish that this never happened. I wish that I didn't do these things. I wish that I didn't, you know, cheat on my first wife. I wish that I didn't cheat on my second wife. I wish I didn't cheat on anybody. I, I wish that I didn't have, you, you know, sexual relations with people whom I, I, for real, I wouldn't know them now. If a woman walks up to me and says, we had sex in 2002, I'd be like, I, I, I got nothing. I, I, I could not conclusively say that that's not true. And that, that, that kind of, that, that kind of haunts me. I, I mean, just the, why is this my life? I, I'm not, I'm not judging myself or anybody else. I just, I, I wish that, you know, sex is, 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 is awesome. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It feels great. And I turned that into a compulsion and an addiction and ruined it. But I don't want to sit here now and just be that for the rest of my life. Just talking about how much I regret all the things I did between the ages of, you know, 15 and 25, because I'm just, I'm filled with regrets. 
but I, I don't know what to do about it. And, and, you know, my defense mechanism is humor. I just want to get it out there. I want to talk about it. But I do want listeners to know I, I am, I'm incredibly sorry for it. Uh, I If I could take it back, I would. If I could, I'm doing everything I can to ensure that it never happens again. But, you know, I, I don't know what to do. I take a lot of criticism for being so cavalier about the way that I behaved you know, 20 years ago. And I, I think that some of it is in fact fair criticism, but the counterpoint to that is what am I supposed to do? Like walk around with a scarlet letter? I mean, that can't work either. No. And, and you truly believe, and I believe that it was a factor from your mental illness. Do you not? I mean, I wonder if some of the people who are who give you a lot of criticism wonder, well, he's just making excuses. He didn't have to go out and have sex. And then he could just say he's got bipolar. Yeah, it doesn't help that celebrities do this shit, that every time a celebrity gets caught cheating on their wife and the mother of their children, that they start screaming sex addiction and hypersexuality. And then it it, and listen, I'm, I'm again, maybe one of them is honest, but really you know, at some point when every single famous person who gets caught cheating claims that they have hypersexuality and or sex addiction, really all of you, it's, it just runs rampant, doesn't it? Right, I mean, th- th- right. this is probably the, this, this is, this is one of the biggest illnesses in America. I mean, it, it's outpacing drug addiction and, and mental illness. Just, oh my God, everybody that cheats on their wife goes to rehab and, and also, Rehab works great on sex addiction for the rich, apparently. You, you know, they, they they spend 28 days in jail, they buy their wife a $7 million ring, and boom, they're cured. This is not reality. And I wish that somebody would stand up to these people and say, listen, you're a liar, and you're hurting people who are actually suffering from these illnesses. So how do you distinguish, just to play the devil's advocate, Sure. how do you distinguish between somebody who... You know, what's to say they aren't seriously suffering from a mental illness at the time, and that really is it, versus they're making an excuse and, like you said, just buy the woman a huge diamond ring and you're back together until you cheat again and buy her a car. Yeah. So hypersexuality looks a certain way, and uh, the best way that I can explain it is this. If you can do your job perfectly and then after your job is over, hypersexuality is causing you problems, you don't have hypersexuality. Right, and right. you know, the, these, you know, these folks, they, you know, they're, they're, they're very rich and they're very much in the public eye. And, uh, you, you know, they're, they're able to control themselves I- until they're private for some reason. You know, Tiger Woods never missed a single golf game because he had to have sex. You know, he wasn't in outhouses, you know, during in in the middle of the rounds. That's what hypersexuality looks like. Hypersexuality and sex addiction is, look, I know it's my turn and I have to hit this ball on national television. But unless somebody's willing to go into the clubhouse and have sex with me right now, I can't do it. Also, there's there's a chronic masturbation part that nobody wants to talk about because it's way less sexy. (laughs) But of course, Gabe will share. (laughs) <laughs> I, you know, it, it's important to know what it looks like. And it, we see this in other things as well. I mean, look at alcoholism. You, you know, alcoholism, it looks a certain way. It, it, it has certain things, certain markers that you need to look for. Do you wake up in the morning and have to drink? 
that could be a sign of alcoholism. Uh, do, do, do you have to be drunk 24-7, sign of alcoholism? Do you drink while at work? Do you miss work because you're drunk? Do you miss important things that used to be important to you but now no longer are because you've replaced them with alcohol? See, that's what I mean. If everything in your life is normal and at the end of the day you have a glass of wine at dinner and then somebody tries to convince you that that's alcoholism, they're lying. Right. It's not. And, uh, and, and just to be clear, important. you're making that analogy to somebody whose life is perfectly fine until they cheat on somebody and then they claim I'm hypersexual and it's an addiction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, frankly, the the uh, the only guy I know that, that could make even the tiniest claim to it didn't. And, uh, you know, that that's our uh, illustrious president, uh, Mr. Bill Clinton. Right. You, you know, this is a dude that did it at work in a, in, a, in a way where he was destined to get caught in front of the American people. That's the kind of risk that somebody who's hypersexual would take. And just just to be clear, I, I don't want to get political. Please don't send me letters. This has nothing to do with politics or who I voted for or how I feel. I'm just saying that that more closely mirrors what we're talking about. And even I don't think that that dude is hypersexual. I just think he was an idiot for doing that. Right. Uh, and, and he never claimed that he had a sex addiction or hypersexuality. But we're starting to get closer to more what that looks like. Cheating on your wife when you have an away game, but keeping it perfectly in your pants when you're at home or during the off season, that, that's not what addiction looks like. I, I'm sorry. It just doesn't. No, I think you have a really good point. So bring us back to going into the hospital for the first time. And I know you mentioned you don't remember at all. But I'm curious how they came up with the diagnosis and how that diagnosis landed with you. It, it, it landed hard when, you know, there's a lot that I could talk about. We could, we could really spend a lot of time on it because, you know, I, I was there for three days and, and all I had was, was my thoughts of what was happening to me. You know, there, there, there was no distraction. I was, I was locked in a psychiatric ward. I think that most people can understand that, hey, you have a lot of time to reflect when you're locked in a psychiatric ward. Well, and if it's only three days, that sounds more like suicide watch than any kind of inpatient, you know, inpatient therapy and counseling. Sounds That's more what like, I was on. Yeah. Suicide watch, get him medicated, get it taken care of. But how quickly do you think they came up with the diagnosis? Although yours does sound pretty, pretty darn easy when you're having these um, such manias and depressive episodes. Yeah. So the, the first thing that I want to say is uh, I, I always tell the story that I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder uh, mid-morning while in the psychiatric hospital, because that is my recollection. That is the first time that I heard the diagnosis. That is that is when I was told that I remember it. Uh, apparently, I was actually diagnosed with bipolar disorder the night before in the emergency room uh, when the psychiatrist said, this is a textbook example of bipolar disorder. Everything you've described is bipolar disorder. We're going to, we're going to put them in for the, for, for observation for suicide. We're going to start treating them with this and we're going to see what happens. Right. Um, now I, I don't remember that. I have no reason to disbelieve the people who told me that I'm, I'm, they, they are, they are being very honest, but apparently I didn't react to anything that night and I do not remember it firsthand that morning when I saw the, the, you know, not the ER psychiatrist, the, the person who, you know, runs the, the, the clinic, or not the clinic, the, the inpatient ward, uh, he told me, he said, you know, we've diagnosed you with bipolar disorder. And see, it, at that moment, I only knew one person in the whole world with bipolar disorder. And uh, that was a gentleman named Kurt Cobain. And 
For those of you who don't know, Kurt Cobain is the lead singer of Nirvana. Nirvana was a rock band in the 90s. Uh, they were probably the biggest band at the time. And Kurt Cobain was famous. Kurt Man. Cobain was rich. And died by suicide. And he was bipolar. Yeah. So I knew that he was bipolar. I knew that he died by suicide. And I thought to myself, I'm nobody. I'm not rich. I'm not a once in a lifetime musical talent. I, I'm, I don't have people who depend on me. I, I don't have children. I've driven off my wife. I'm divorced. I mean, you know, it, think of all the things that Kurt Cobain had going for him and he couldn't beat bipolar disorder. So as far as I was concerned, I was dead. And beyond that, I couldn't think of a single person living with mental illness who was doing well. I could think of lots of horror stories because, you know, the, the news really helps push those out. But I couldn't think of any positive stories. And I I thought so many things, you know, I thought, oh, my God, thank God I'm here before I was violent and hurt my family because I thought that all mentally ill people were violent. And I thought I was going to have to, like, liquidate my assets and moved into a group home because I, I didn't think people with mental illness could have jobs. I, I just it was I really wish that I had a stronger word for hopeless. I, I just, it was, I, I thought I was dead. I thought my life was over. I thought that I had nothing to offer society and that I was really just waiting to die somewhere. Um, and, and that's, that, that, that's all I could think because that, what, what else could I possibly think? I, I had absolutely no data to support anything positive all of my data was incredibly negative. And they didn't start any kind of therapy at that point, just medication? They, they did start. So this was, this was the good news. Uh, I only really had to live with those feelings for a few hours. Uh, because when I got to the first uh, group, uh, you, you know, group session, uh, you know, I, I started asking questions. I started hearing things. A, a person that was in my group was married. Uh, and I was like, wait, you're married? And she's like, yeah, I have children, you know, and I don't remember what, you know, she was diagnosed with, et cetera, but she wasn't living in a group home. And, uh, you know, I started asking other people questions. I started asking, you, you know, I, I, I was hooked up with, you know, like a case manager and, and, a, and a, um, a therapist. And I started asking them questions and they started giving me like books and pamphlets. And, and you know, thank God I'm a reader because I just started reading just as fast as I could. Everything that they could give me, I would read on bipolar disorder. And the two things that started happening very quickly is everything I read about bipolar disorder, I immediately saw in my own life as far back as I can remember from, from the mood swings to the mania to the, again, remember my mother, I was her Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde child. Right. Doesn't that sound like bipolar? So even my mom knew that I was bipolar. She just didn't. So what did didn't. that, what did that mean to you when, when you were reading and you could, you could verify every piece of your life and relate it to what you were reading? See, the, the, that, that was great because I started seeing all of the things that I thought were flaws as symptoms. I started seeing, you know, all the times that I couldn't, you know, obey my parents, listen to my dad or, or live up to their expectations and values as not Gabe being, you know, a jerk or a bad person or horrible, but of being sick. And if I could treat that illness, it means I still had a shot to be who my parents wanted me to be. Right. It means I still had a shot at happiness or at redemption or, and of course, I thought about suicide as far back as I can remember. And I learned while I was in the hospital that that wasn't normal. Well, I, I, I had to learn a completely new way of thinking. 
And, you know, the, the, I, I always say from the time I was diagnosed to the time that I reached recovery with bipolar disorder it took four years because I had a lot to accomplish. It takes a long time to get the right medications. It takes a long time to learn coping skills. It takes a long time to, to, to change your worldview and your outlook on everything. Everything that I, I thought I knew was completely colored by this, this untreated down. mental illness and I, I had to relearn it all. So, I could no longer relate to my brain in the same way. One thing one thing I got to ask, you said you read that it wasn't normal to have suicidal thoughts. You And I want to clarify because I'm imagining you mean for a person, that's not a normal everyday thing. For someone with bipolar disorder, it probably is not so uncommon. Oh, is, yeah, is that right? Okay. Yeah, I just the, wanted to make sure. So, man, it sounds like a roller coaster. I mean, I hear you saying first thing you thought was I'm doomed. Uh, all I've heard about, you know, are people with mental illnesses who are violent, who have died and uh, and then actually soaking up and asking questions and reading and doing a bunch of educating yourself and realizing and making connections like yeah, this is me. And that means I do have an illness and that means it's treatable and there is hope. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 you know, hope did come slowly. Uh, and in small bursts, you know, I'd be very, very hopeful for a time and then I'd fall back and be very unhopeful for a time. Then I'd be hopeful for a time again. I, you, you probably get the idea, you know, how yeah. that works. Oh, I, mean, absolutely. I think that's, that's, pretty common. I don't think that's a bipolar thing. I think that's, that's, I think most mental illnesses kind of follow that pattern. Um, and you know, different treatments did different things. You know, the, you know, not only did I have to, you know, adjust to living with bipolar disorder, but you know, think of like the side effects of medications, you, you, you know, so now I have, I have bipolar disorder. I have the symptoms of bipolar disorder. I'm trying to treat bipolar disorder. I don't want to be suicidal anymore. I'm going to take this pill and uh Oh, now my sex drive is gone and my penis stopped working. Right. Yeah, that's not going to stand. Uh, what's with all this dry mouth? Why am I sleeping 20 hours a day? Why is my vision blurry? Why am I dizzy all the time? Why do I have tremors? I mean, think of all the side effects of medications. And, you know, I didn't have all of them, obviously, but, you know, different medications cause different issues and problems. And it takes a long time to dial those in. And at some point, you got to decide, like, what are you willing to accept? Mm -hmm. Like, obviously, I'm not willing to accept having no sex drive because I want to have sex. That's important to me. I'm a, I'm a young man uh, and, or a young person, you know, it's not even male. It's just, I'm a young person. I want to be able to have sex, but I have chronic dry mouth. That's a good trade. I will have chronic dry mouth in exchange for not wanting to die. Right. That, that's a, that's a great trade, but listen, that's a trade that I can make because for example, I'm not a tuba player or a flautist or, you know, I, I, saliva is not all that important to me. Right. Um, but depending on what I did for a living, that might not be a trade that I was willing to trade. And so I'm guessing that with various side effects, the ones that you were saying, for example, you, you wouldn't be able to live with, you would then work with your psychiatrist and say, Hey, this is one of the side effects. Can we do something about this? And then either tweak a dosage, try a different med a until you could eliminate that type of side effect. Yeah, I had to keep going back to the doctor and report these things. Right. And, uh, you know, some are easy to report. You, you know, you go to the doctor and you're like, hey, I can't be on this med. I, 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 I've, I've been asleep for the last 72 hours. It, it's clearly knocking me out. Uh, but, you know, others are harder. And, uh, you know, I, I'm very lucky. You, you know, I, I, I joke, you know, my, my father's a truck driver, so I can talk about sex with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I heard my first dirty joke when I was nine. But... <laughs> 
not everybody's like this. You, you know, imagine if you're a, 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 a 21 year old woman, you're unmarried, you're a 21 year old woman, you're diagnosed with bipolar disorder and you're put on medications that, that make your libido go away. And then you go to the doctor who's the same age as your grandfather and you have to tell him that you want to have sex. And for a lot of people, especially given that our society is kind of weird about, you know, discussing sex and sexuality, especially in females, they're not willing to have that conversation. So they start they start telling the doctor that they're taking the meds, but they're not. And that gives the doctor bad data and then they get bad care, which is why I say, you know, listen, as uncomfortable as it is to tell your doctor a lot of things. Uh, especially for young people, you know, now that I'm over 40, I'm talking about things I never thought I would talk about with doctors. But when I was 25, you know, I'd never had a colonoscopy. I'd never had a, I'd never had any of this. Think of all the things you have to do when you're over 40. None of that stuff happens to 25 year olds. None of it. I hadn't even have a prostate exam at this point. So it, these are all very awkward conversations for young people to have with doctors. But, you know, suck it up, buttercup. They're tough, but you got to do it. Well, I think it also speaks to making sure you do have a doctor who does listen to you and that you trust and you're willing to share with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You the, know, I mean, if if you're sharing your sex life as a 20 year old woman and the doctor starts reprimanding you, telling you how you shouldn't be having sex at 20, probably not the best doctor. And maybe it's time to check in with another one. Exactly. And, you know, and I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't point this out as well. It isn't, isn't that something that's awesome? You don't like your doctor, you can get a new one, which probably means that you have enough money to switch doctors. You probably have a private payer source like insurance. You're not on, uh, you're not paying cash or, um, you don't have like public assistance or whatever. Or of course, it also means that you live in a big city. You know, look, I live in Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, Ohio is the 18th largest city in America. There are a hundred psychiatrists here and I have really good insurance. So that makes it easy to switch doctors that piss me off. Yeah, but imagine absolutely. if I lived in, you know, rural Utah, you know, I live in a small town with 10,000 people. There might only be one psychiatrist. And if you don't like that psychiatrist, you've got to drive four hours to the next big city while sick. And it, you know, so, so, you know, this, this becomes tough as well. It, it's just, it's one of the things that makes care difficult. Mm, we got uh, a lot of work to do around care. A ton, a ton. But I will say, and this is, you know, I'm speaking to any, any doctor, psychiatrist, psychologist, you, you know, you, you, you took an oath to help us. And, uh, you, you know, as much as you may not like the idea of a 20 year old who is unmarried having sex, that's, that's not your concern. Your, your concern is to help them be in the same position they would be in as if they weren't sick. Right. And 20 year olds who are not sick, you know, sometimes they have sex with people yeah. and uh, you, you know, you, you really just should respect that. And I do think, I do think that we're getting better as a culture in, in, in understanding, you, you know, that, that women like to have sex too, and understanding that we can't regulate sexuality and because it's always sex. You know, the reason that I bring this up is not because I, I just like to talk about sex all the time. It's because that's the number one reason that young people go off their, their psychiatric meds. They have a side, they have a sexual side effect. And, and listen, there, there aren't many 18 to 25 year olds in America that are willing to give up sex in order to be mentally healthy. I'm sorry. That, well, that's and, just a fact. And like you said, it is well worth that uncomfortable conversation because guess what? There might be a med that's just like it that doesn't have that side effect. Yep. I found it. 
Yeah. I, I, and I found it for me right. and it's going to be different for Al. It's going to be different for everybody. Exactly. But I, I tried a ton of different combinations uh, and on and on and on and on and on. And I finally got there and it was so worth it. You know, I, I did spend four years. I spent four years of my life battling bipolar disorder. And that's a long time. Four years is a long time. But well, that's hopefully... after the diagnosis. How yeah. about before? Well, yeah, yeah. I wasted so many years doing that. You know, I, I, I tell a lot of people that as as far as I'm concerned, my life started at at, at 30. I I really feel like I, I lost many, many years to bipolar disorder, uh, either not knowing that I was sick and wasting all of that time or knowing that I was sick and, and battling it to try to get better. But listen, one day I woke up, I was 30 years old and, and I had it, I had it, it's not licked because there's no cure, but I was in recovery and I knew how to manage it. And I was, I was just, I was able to lead a normal life. And yeah, it, it sucks that I lost, you know, what, 12 years of adulthood to this illness, but from 30 to 76, I'm going to assume that I make it to 76. That's, that's the average age for a male born the year that I was born, uh, to, to live. So that, that's a, that's a lot of time that I still have. And I've made really good use of that time. Uh, you know, I have a dog. I have a wife. I've I've gone on vacation. I I I made up with my parents. I've had Christmases and and Thanksgivings, and I find joy in things. I've seen the Rolling Stones like five times. I I just it, it's. <laughs> I'm hoping your wife doesn't necessarily listen because she might pick up on the fact that you mentioned the dog before you mentioned her. Oh no, she you <laughs> listen. She knows. Okay. Yeah, in right, fact, right. she will listen and she will say she's like I knew it. He mentioned that damn dog. <laughs> But, but here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I didn't want the dog. (laughs) I was against the dog. I fought against that dog for, for three years, every day, every day. She's like, we should get a dog. No, like, like for real. Like I, I was like, I don't want animals in my house. They're filthy and disgusting. I will not tolerate a dog. And finally I said, okay, here's the deal. We can have a dog, but keep the dog away from me. The dog cannot sleep in our bed. I will not clean up after the dog. You are responsible for all dog care. The dog is not allowed on the furniture. The do- I just gave her all, the dog has to go to training. You do it all. Keep the dog away from me. Now the dog is my dog. Just as I'm saying, <laughs> I keep saying dog and he's looking at me. He's like, what? What do you want? He's he's right here and he's staring at me. He's like, what? That is funny. I love my dog. Hey, this is, uh, you this know, is the best thing I've ever done after my wife who talked me into the dog. But by <laughs> saying the dog first, I'm also admitting that my wife was right and that I was wrong. And frankly, that's more important than going That, that first. is very, very important. I can attest to that. Uh, you know, it is interesting as a person who has um, dealt with two major bouts of depression, uh, debilitating depression, I'd say, uh, after speaking with several different men who live with bipolar disorder, bipolar disorder seems like much more about maintaining and managing meds where I feel very lucky that like I still take a medication, but it's one pill in the morning and that's it. And I've been on the same. I did have to change a couple of times, but uh, pretty much one med the entire time. And uh Bipolar disorder seems like sometimes if you're you feel a mania coming on, you may have to adjust the meds. If you're going into a deep depression, you might have to again change and and modify the meds. Is that pretty accurate? 
Um, you know, to to a point, sort of. Uh, the the first thing is, yeah. I mean, I'm on seven medications, and and you you'd be hard pressed to find somebody with with bipolar disorder that 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 wasn't on multiple medications. It it's not a it's not a one pill deal. Right. Uh, you, you know, and, and it's it's not to say that that taking one pill is is any you, you know. It, you know, taking taking one psychiatric pill or taking seven sort of has the same you know toll on in in psychologically that hey something's wrong and I'm not as strong as everybody else. So, but yeah, in order to get on seven medications, it takes a lot longer. Uh, you know, I wish that I could take one medication because that would be easier. And when something goes wrong, you know, if a new symptom crops up, well, which one of the seven did it? Right, right. Uh, it, it's it's like having multiple kids, you know. Right. It's like, who did it? I don't know. It wasn't me. Uh, <laughs> so it definitely uh, complicates things. Ah, it's a pain in the ass. I mean, yeah. just let, let's let's just own it. It's a pain in the ass. Right. Uh, but, you know, that that said, you know, just it, it, it's the same way with with lots of illnesses. I mean, uh, I would rather have the flu than diabetes and I would rather have diabetes than cancer. Um, it, you know, and on and on and on. And I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, put. I'm not trying to say, you know, like which illnesses are better or worse or anything like that. But, you know, for for the purposes of, you know, of a, of instruction, I guess, or, or analogy, we all understand that there's some physical illnesses that are easier to treat than other physical illnesses. And there's some mental illnesses that are easier to treat than other mental illnesses. But, you know, listen, what we all have in common is we all have mental illness and we're all striving for wellness. And, you, you know, I, I want it to be easy for everybody. You know, I, I want the research to catch up so that, you know, I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, yeah, I have bipolar disorder, but I just take that bipolar shot and, and that's all I have to do. And they're like, oh, well, that's great. You know, I have schizophrenia, so I'm on seven pills and then we'll move on to the next step, I guess. <laughs> and then the the shot for the schizophrenia. Yeah, I, I just I, I want this whole thing to be wiped out. Yeah, and, hey, the, and I think we all do. The other uh, thing I wanted to ask you about was I found it interesting that throughout the conversation, you haven't mentioned bipolar one versus bipolar two. I'm curious about that and which one you have and what, how you would describe the differences. So, so the, uh, I have bipolar one and the difference between bipolar one and bipolar two is, is essentially this, uh, in bipolar one, you have extreme highs and extreme lows. The, the highs of mania are limitless. Uh, and, and, and the lows are, are, are limitless as well. They, they, they go all the way down and the highs go all the way up. Uh, and there could potentially be, a, a component called uh, psychotic features that goes with it. And this is, this is very layman's term. So, you know, please, if your doctor has said something different, believe them, don't get your medical, uh, uh, information directly from Gabe, just use this <laughs> to start conversations. Uh, but so I have bipolar one with psychotic features. Uh, the psychotic features comes in because of the delusions. I was delusional. Not everybody with bipolar disorder is delusional. Uh, it, it's not, it, it, you don't have to be delusional in order to have, um, bipolar disorder. So bipolar two came about because doctors were noticing that there were some folks that, that had the extreme lows, you know, the suicidal depression, the deep, dark pit of hell, and then they would have what's called hypomania. So they, they'd still have mania, but for lack of a better word, it was mania light. Uh, you know, hypomania is kind of a different beast. Uh, with mania, you'll jump off of a building because you can fly. With hypomania, you'll stand next to the building, think you can do it, but there's still enough left in there that you're like, eh, maybe I won't. Uh, so hypomania, like I said, for, for lack of a better way to describe it, is like mania light. Well, 
that wasn't getting, if you just had hypomania, you didn't meet the diagnostic criteria of bipolar disorder. So how do you treat these people? Do you, do you sit around and wait until they have a full blown manic attack? Because they may never. It, that's what they found. They, they found that a lot of people didn't, but they also couldn't treat them for just depression because then hypomania would come and wreck with, you know, wreck their lives. So they started treating people with, I guess, not bipolar, uh, because they only had depression and, and hypomania the same way they treated people with bipolar disorder, but they still had to acknowledge that there was a difference. Uh, so that's sort of where bipolar one and bipolar two came from. Um, I, I don't want people to hear this though. Bipolar two is not bipolar light. It, it, it's not an easier version of bipolar disorder. It's not a better version of bipolar disorder. It's just a different version of bipolar disorder. And uh, I, I really don't like that. I know that's kind of a pet peeve of mine, but you know, out in the bipolar community, there's some folks like, well, I have bipolar one, I'm sicker. Look, we're all sick, just it's fine. <laughs> right. There, there, there's plenty of suffering to go around. You don't have to compete for it. <laughs> so tell us what happened. Uh, you get your diagnosis. You're in the hospital for three days. You walk out that door on new medications. What's life like for you at that point? Yeah, it, life was a, a, a train wreck. I, I really shouldn't have been let out after three days. It, it wasn't enough time. Uh, you know, a 72 hour hold is what my insurance covered. I, I had a, a, what they felt I guess was a good support system to release me to. Uh, they, they did get me into an outpatient treatment program that started over. Um, but you know, frankly, the, the biggest reason they let me out after three days is because if they didn't let me out on Friday, they had to keep me till Monday and they didn't want to keep me till Monday. You know, you know, they, they, they didn't have the, they were full up. They knew they'd be getting people over the weekends on the emergency, uh, you know, that they'd be, they, they, I, I hate to say be stuck with, but that, that they'd be stuck with. So I, I was an easy one to boot and I was very, very lucky because the person who brought me also agreed to kind of stay with me and keep me safe. Uh, and, and she did, but in reality, I, I probably should have been there longer uh, but I wasn't, but I was released. I was released sort of to her care. Uh, you know, she took care of me for a few days. Then I started the day program on that Tuesday. Uh, and a day program, you you sleep at home, but you get there at like 9 a.m. and you leave at like 5 p.m. Um, and you do kind of all the stuff that you would do on an inpatient unit, except just for like eight hours a day. At the end of the day, you go home, sleep, and then you come back the next day. Or And then they, eventually they wean you down. You know, when you first go, you go like, you know, four days or five days a week. Then you go three days, two days. Uh, and then eventually you're, you're sort of done. Um, I went through two of those. I, I got done and went back to work for a couple of months and then sort of relapsed where they put me in another day program where I did it again. And, uh, you know, I just, I, it, 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 I, I think I got good care, but it could have been better. And frankly, I probably had the the best care that money can buy, except the fact that, you know, I, I think everywhere I went, there was some external force trying to get me to the next step faster. They weren't really basing it on how I was doing or how I was feeling. They really just based it on like how much my insurance would pay for. Uh, and that's a really crummy way to get care. Uh, and so how long were you in recovery before you started any kind of advocacy work? So, you know, it's, it's, that's a that's a little bit tricky to kind of answer. So I, I would say that, you know, I, it took me four years to reach recovery. And then, 
you know, I, I was recovered. And, and even during those four years, I had participated in, you know, with some like local charities, you know, like a, a local walk, you know, for mental illness. And I raised some money, uh, you, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, you, you know, I, I attended support groups that were sponsored, you know, because I was using the support groups to get help. And then when they would have events, you know, I would want to, you know, help fundraise or participate. So uh, at some point they asked me to uh, be a walk team chair. Uh, I had no idea what that was. I just said yes. And uh, they asked me to give a speech. And that speech was the the first public speaking gig I ever had. And I was terrible. I, I was I was absolutely awful. But it was the most amazing experience. To this day, there's never been a speech like it because it was just. I, I mean, it was. It was amazing. I, I stood in front of a room full of people and I told them, you know, in, in, in 15 minutes, what happened to me and why I didn't want it to happen to anybody else and how we had to do better. And uh, I got a standing ovation. And I, I want to be clear, I, I've only gotten four standing ovations in my entire career. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, and I do this for a living, as you know. So I, I, I want to be clear. It, it's, it, it's hard to get standing ovations. This isn't the movie, you know, people are eating, they're busy. They don't have time to stand up. You're lucky if they listen. How uh, were you feeling before that talk? Were you nervous as could be? I mean, this was your first time sharing your story publicly. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know how I was. I, 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 I was nervous. I, I don't want to pretend that I wasn't nervous, but I, I think that there was just such an array of emotions that they all kind of roadblocked each other. You, you know, the, the the nervousness was kind of mixed in with the I want to be prepared. I don't want to embarrass myself. And then, of course, embarrassment was a real thing. And and I just I, I, I don't know. I I I, I was I, terrified is really the best way that I can describe it. I, I, I was legitimately terrified. And uh, I. I guess I don't know how I did it. I mean, like how I, I got through it. I was really prepared. I read a lot of books on it. I had done stand-up comedy before, um, like for free, you, you know, like, uh, you know, for groups. So I'd, I I shouldn't say that it was the first time that I ever spoke in front of an audience because I, I, you know, I had like, you know, I'd taken improv classes and things like that. So I had I had a little bit of, of uh, you, you know, public speaking knowledge working for me. But not but, sharing such a, personal no no you know, no challenging yeah, story I, yeah yeah the, the 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 comedy was you know sophomoric jokes about you know garbage and roller coasters and <laughs> no, nothing substantial at all uh but you know i i i just the 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 executive director believed in my story and she believed in me and uh, I asked a lot of questions and she answered a lot of questions and she just kept telling me over and over again that this will help people. That's what she said. This will help somebody. This will help somebody. She just, you know, stories are valuable. This will help somebody. And uh, I, I just kind of had that in my head the whole time that this will help somebody. I didn't know how, uh, but she didn't strike me as a liar. So I believed her. And uh, I have no idea if that story helped anybody or not. I, I'm, I'm not trying to be cynical. I, I don't know for 100%, but I do know that it was powerful and meaningful to me. And uh, I, 
I know for a fact it didn't hurt anybody. <laughs> and immediately and, after you get this standing ovation and in your head where you're like, I got to keep doing this. This is amazing. Uh, at, at, in that moment, I was like, what is wrong with you people? I sucked. <laughs> um, I, j- just to be completely honest, I, I, I really thought that, you know, I was going to get like a polite golf clap. You know, I didn't think anybody would be rude. Um, although I was open to the possibility of having tomato thrown at me, uh, I, I just, I, I was, I was just so surprised at how they reacted. And, uh, I, I was just surprised at how they reacted. I, I guess that's really the, the best way I was, I was shocked and, uh, the significance of it really didn't dawn on me until after the, the walk, because, you know, the kickoff luncheon was the kickoff for, you know, this walk. So it took another two months and I had other duties to do. You know, I, I wrote something for the newsletter. Obviously, I had to be there on walk day. I had my team, you know, where I fundraised and and I raised the second most uh, money for, for the group. I was, I was very proud of myself, you know, for raising that kind of money. And, uh, you know, then it was all over and then it kind of went away. And I I that that's really where the percolation started because, you know, during the two months that I was going to the meetings and I was raising the money and my story was coming out and I was talking to people, uh, that all felt, that all felt right and good and powerful. But then when the walk was over, it was over, you know, no, nobody was asking me questions anymore. Nobody was asking me to write. Nobody was asking for my help. Nobody was asking for my, my anything. It, it, I, I, my, I was done. I faded back into obscurity and uh, I, I wanted it back. I, I guess that's really the, uh, I, I wanted it back. And, uh, you know, that's, that was the seed. Uh, and that, that was the seed. And, and that, that's got me all the way to here. I, I don't know how people ask me all the time. How did you get here? I don't know. Well, uh, there were certainly a few steps in between there. And I know that you do a fair amount with psych central, correct? Yeah, a ton, a ton. Yeah, so you, I mean, you write for them, you have a book out, you have podcasts, more than one, correct? Yeah, I have two. So uh, let's hear first about your writing. Uh, You write for Psych Central, you have your own blog, and you have a book. I do, I do. You're you're a published author, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, I write, uh, so over on Psych Central, I write for the blog World of Psychology, which is not not mine. It, it's World of Psychology, and, and there, there's there's tons of people who write for that blog. Uh, I, I am not the only one. You know, there's, uh, uh, you know, there's psychologists that write for the blog. There's, there's you know, parents, caregivers that write for the blog. There's there's people like me who write for it. It's, it's, it's you know, it, it's World of Psychology, and it comes out three times a day. So there's, there's lots of writers on lots of different subjects. And I really like writing over there because, you know, the people that subscribe to it, you know, they, they get like this, this really complete view. Uh, you, you know, I write about my lived experience and what I see and what is meaningful to me. And if I just wrote on my own blog, then the people who followed me would only ever hear about Gabe, uh, and how Gabe feels. Uh, whereas if you read the other thing, you, you have the opportunity to not only learn about how Gabe feels, but about how Gabe's psychologist feels and not only how Gabe's psychologist feels, but you know, how Gabe's therapist feels. not, not my literal psychologist and therapist, but you get the idea. Right. And well, it also makes me think about how you have said several times and really made it clear that, you know, your bipolar, uh, looks different and is different than other people with bipolar disorder. Exactly. And, and they, I would imagine there are other people with bipolar disorder and people can get multiple perspectives is what I hear you saying. Yeah. And it, it is, it, I feel 
that it is incredibly valuable, incredibly valuable to learn about all the different perspectives. And, and I don't just mean all the people living with mental illnesses perspective. I, I mean society, first responders, police officers, uh, the, the, the scared neighbor. People are like, why would we listen to the scared neighbor? They're spreading stigma. Be, because they're spreading stigma, that's why you need to listen to them so that you can help them understand. If they're not talking to you, who are they getting their information from? People are like, oh, well, that's a good point. And <laughs> I, you know, so, so I just, th that, that's why I write for world of psychology and I love it. You know, psych central's huge, obviously, you know, they're, they're, I think they're the biggest mental health site on the internet. Well, I was going to say, this is a great time to give John a shout out, right? The founder, we CEO. Love, we love Dr. Grohal. Dr. Yeah. John Grohal is the founder and the CEO. And he everything is that I have ever done is because of him. Uh, so if you like it, uh, it's because he let me. Uh, if you dislike it, remember he let me, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to meet, uh, John at the same conference, healthy voices conference. And, yeah. you know, I knew all about psych central cause it is a huge site and, uh, and he's just such a nice guy and very knowledgeable and has such, uh, such a powerful thing going with psych central, um, that I, I definitely want to give him a shout out. And uh, it's cool that you're connected with them. So before we move on to the podcast, because I know one is associated with Psych Central, but you also wrote a book and you have your own blog, correct? I did. Well, so I really don't. I have GabeHoward.com, which is which is where, uh, you know, I, I used to write a lot more often over there. But I, I would say that pretty much everything that I write nowadays is over on uh, Psych Central. Okay. Um, but, you know, I do reprint a lot of stuff on GabeHoward.com. And, you know, every now and again, something pops up on there. Uh, but I, I've really, I really push a lot of my, my work over to Psych Central now. It's just, it's a much better, you know, I mean, just let's be honest. If you go to PsychCentral.com, you can read... You, you know, hundreds of thousands of stories, opinions, and everything from from the lived experience point of view like mine, all the way to a technical article on the latest study on how hair follicles determine schizophrenia, right, and everything right. in between. Uh, if you go to GabeHoward.com, you're stuck with Gabe. Uh, yeah, but GabeHoward.com, if I remember correctly, is also how people can book you to speak or yep. have you visit and uh, uh, get to some other, uh, get to your book. Yep. Yep. You can buy my book at GabeHoward.com. You can uh, you can read what I have to say. You can see the links to a lot of stuff that I do. And of course, you can hire me to come speak at your event uh, by going to GabeHoward.com. So, you know, the site has a purpose. But, uh, you know, I, I, I feel very strongly that if you want to learn the most, you you, you need to go to where the most people are. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I didn't join Psych Central, you know, out of like desperation or or anything like that. I, I joined it because I, I felt that it was a good community for the exchange of mental health knowledge, right. um, including knowledge that I disagree with. Uh, and I, I think that that has so much power. You know, so often people don't want to read what they don't agree with. That, that that's, that's completely wrong. You should spend more time reading and understanding what you don't agree with. Because maybe the reason that you disagree with it is based on your own misunderstanding. Uh, I think I just, that's a, a huge, valuable point and one that I have to admit, sometimes I struggle with myself because I'm on Twitter quite a bit. And when somebody, you know, gives me a dissenting opinion about something, <laughs> it's a pet. Right. I mean, it's a passionate topic, mental illness ah. and what everybody's going through and everything. So it's easy to get passionate. And at the same time, I really do value multiple perspectives and others opinions. So. 
Um, that's a great point. Tell us yeah. about your book. Uh, Mental so illness my... is beep. <laughs> no, I'm you can actually, you word? can certainly say it. So the name of my book is Mental Illness is an Asshole and Other Observations. And it's 380 pages written over basically the last five years of all different types of experiences, situations, thoughts, meanderings, whatever you want to call it. There's there's a ton of articles in there. And I, I really do think that it's one-stop shopping to get an excellent overview of what it's like to advocate for people living with mental illness, what it's like to live with mental illness, what it's like to work with and understand caregivers and first responders. Uh, and, and finally, just, you know, hearing random musings by a guy who lives with bipolar disorder. And it, it's all put together. And I feel, I feel that if you know nothing, and you pick up this book and read it cover to cover, you will be in an excellent position to learn more. You will have a good knowledge base and foundation to ask questions, to understand basic concepts. You will have some misconceptions busted. You will you know, say less stupid things for lack of a better word. I, I don't know how you wanna put it, but I, I really think that a lot of people are afraid to have conversations surrounding mental illness and mental health because they don't know where to start. And that's that's really the crux of the book. It won't solve any problem. If you're living with bipolar disorder, when you are done reading this book, you will still be living with bipolar disorder. You'll get some hints and tips along the way that I think will put you in a good position to keep learning. And I, if, you know, look, if I had to use a big word, I would call it a foundational knowledge book. That's what it is. Sounds great. Mental illness is an asshole. Mental illness is an asshole. You can get it at GabeHoward.com. I'll sign it and give you stickers. Awesome. Uh, the other piece uh, that I've definitely really enjoyed are two uh, podcasts that you have. Uh, is it correct that just one one of the two is connected with Psych Central, and that's with uh, Vincent Wales as your counterpart? Yep. So it's uh, um, both are connected to Psych Central. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The uh, but one of them is very connected to Psych Central because it is called The Psych Central Show. <laughs> that It doesn't get much tighter than that. And, and yeah. Vincent uh, is a person who lives with dysthymia, correct? Uh, kind yeah, of a, yeah. a low-grade chronic depression. Yeah, it's uh, uh, dysthymia has been sort of rebranded as uh, persistent depressive disorder, but uh, dysthymia is, is, is still correct as well. Um, but yeah, it's just this low-grade depression that you can't really kick. Uh, it, it's, it's not enough to make you suicidal, but it is enough to, you know, really mess with you. Uh, it, it's really weird calling it low grade depression because I don't know, it's, it's kind of like having like low grade cancer. I mean, I, I suppose it does exist for diagnostic criteria, but it's all depression's pretty crummy. Uh, but yeah, yeah. And, and Vin, Vin's been on the show, right? Uh, he has not yet been a oh. guest on this show but i would love to have him on the show the and bastard. and it's really interesting you know as a person who lives with dysthymia i found him to be a uh, really a funny really really nice guy funny and like a dry sense of humor well you know listen if you've got persistent depression you're probably going to have a dry sense of humor yeah, exactly exactly <laughs> but yeah, vin is vin is a fantastic guy but you are Absolutely. right he's 
you know, Vin is the opposite of me, and that's why we mesh on the Psych Central show. So the, the Psych Central show podcast, it's designed to give experts. So every show has a guest and a theme. So if we want to talk about, say, postpartum depression, for example, we go out and find an expert on, on postpartum depression. But that's, that's not all we do. We force that expert to explain it to lay people. And that's where the power comes in, because there's a lot of people that want to understand these subjects, but they don't know who to ask, who to call. And even if they do know who to ask or who to call, there's no guarantee that it's going to be explained in a way that they understand. And that's, that's what Vin and I do. And you know, Vin and I are different people. You know, I, I'm 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 very charismatic. I'm very gregarious. I'm very you know humorous and funny and loud and and all of the things that you've heard on this podcast. <laughs> Vin is Vin is more serious and muted and laid back. So this allows us. One of us will connect with the guest, and whomever connects with the guest more, you know, will will do more talking and pull out the guest and help the guest explain it so that a lay person can understand it. And also you, you don't want, you know, you don't want two gregarious people on a podcast as hosts. You, you, you want there to be some differences. You want there to be some stylistic choices being made. You uh, want so, somebody with a chronic low grade depression that yeah, won't interrupt you. That's what I was <laughs> yeah, looking right. for. Uh, so is and, it, and, and, is, yeah. is it true that uh, the two of you hadn't met for a long, long time while you had been doing the show? No, not true at all. We've known each other since oh. we were 15 years old. <laughs> oh my goodness, I got that wrong. Okay, actually, actually, I stand corrected. We have known each other since before I was born because he knew my mother. Holy smokes! I, I guess yeah. I was way off base there. Uh, you know, people ask a lot. They're like, "Why'd you pick Vin?" And you know, I've got a variety of answers that I give when I'm, you know, trying to be, you know, professional, etc. But Here's the honest to God's truth. I picked Vin because he would work for free. When when we first started the Psych Central show, there there was no budget. You know, putting on podcasts isn't cheap. There, there's a lot of stuff you got to buy. It takes a lot of time and effort. Tell me and about it. it. You know, when I started interviewing co-hosts, they were like, what's this pay? And I'm like, look, if we can get a sponsor, it, it'll it'll pay, you know, a, a share of, of the revenue. And they're like, forget it. And it, I, I finally, and Vin knows the story. It, it's, he knows I, I finally called him up and I'm like, look, dude, you're, you're the only one left. And he's like, wait, you asked a bunch of other people before me. And I'm like, yeah, I did. I asked a ton of other people before you, they don't want to do it. So if I want to get the show off the ground, I I'm pleading with you to work with me for free. And, uh, Vin said, okay, now listen, it's paid dividends for him. It's an iTunes top 10 podcast in the health category. It has excellent sponsorship. It, yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's listened to, you know, 60,000 times an episode. I don't know. It, it, the people smarter than me figure this stuff out, but it's an extraordinarily popular show because it's driven by Psych Central and because we do a really good job picking guests and topics. And frankly, because Vin and I know when to shut up and we've gotten really good at it. Um, as you know, it's about the guest. So I would love to take credit, but the thing that Vin and I do better than anything else is pick good guests. Do you have a, a favorite guest? I mean, we love them all equally. <laughs> do you have one that comes to the top of your mind when asked? Oh, uh, so I, I don't know if I can say that I have a favorite guest. 
Um, but I have a couple of favorite shows, and that that is in large part due to the guest. The 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 first one is postpartum depression. Vin and I were six months into the show when we started to get some emails from people saying, "Hey, look, the the topics that you're covering they're they're not they're not geared toward women, and we're women." And we had just started to realize the demographic of our audience were largely women, and you know, so you've got a couple of men. Uh, a, a couple of white middle-aged men from the Midwest, uh, y- y- you know, trying to figure out how to do topics that are relatable to women and not be, you know, not be jerks about it. We, we needed to admit that we had a, a, a deficit here. So we reached out to the Psych Central community and said, you know, look, we, 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 we need help. We, we need some, we need a female touch here, you, you, you know, and, uh, uh, a really cool woman uh, who writes for Psych Central. She writes the postpartum depression blog. Uh, she popped up and said, hey, you you really need to interview me on postpartum depression. And we were like, okay. And we had her on the show. And within the first minute, we basically said, look, we're two men without children who have never been pregnant. And we <laughs> Imagine know, that. Yeah, we know nothing. Um, and she said, this is excellent because you're open to learning. And the way that she essentially directed the show, which which was her, she basically taught Vin and I everything that we need. Well, not everything, but a lot to do with postpartum depression and what we needed to know and what we needed to understand. And that experience is amazing because in order for it to work, we had to admit that we were clueless. And that's a hard thing to do on your own show. Yeah, Who I don't know when it comes when it clueless. comes to postpartum, being pregnant, having a baby. I think you, people were probably all right with you admitting that. Yeah, I mean, we we <laughs> definitely chose correctly, uh, but you, you know, we to full disclosure, we tried to do research. But how can you read about the experience of 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 pregnancy? How can you read about the experience of motherhood? How can you? I mean, just we had we had nothing nothing to draw on in our own lives, except for the fact that we, you know, we had relatives who were pregnant. We understood depression, not, not the postpartum part, obviously, but we were open to learning. And uh, that set the stage for other shows where we had no clue. And, uh, you know, we've done lots of topics where, where Vin and I are, are, are clearly just straight up ignorant about the subject. And, uh, one of the things that I feel has an incredible amount of value on our show is Vin and I admit it. We own it. We don't understand it. We don't know. We have somebody that's going to explain it to all of us together. And I, I think the audience knows if if we tried to do it any other way, the audience would be like, yeah, these people are full of shit. And nobody would listen to our show because who wants to listen to a couple of people who are full of shit? Um, so it's, it makes not only is it good ethically and morally, frankly, it also makes good business sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and I preach it a lot. There is nothing wrong with the phrase, I don't know. And so many people are afraid of it. Uh, so- actually, uh, it resonates with me a lot uh, re- in regards to this very podcast, because one of the pieces I love about the, doing this show is the amount of learning I have done. You know, I mean, it's called The Depression Files. I figured I was going to be interviewing just men with depression and immediately found out that so many of my guests do have bipolar disorder. I get to learn about bipolar one, bipolar two that I've never experienced. I've had people who are living with schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, terms I didn't even know. And uh, it's been a phenomenal learning journey for me, selfishly. No. And and that's, 
That's how you know it's working. I, I sincerely believe that that podcasting is a very intimate art form. It, it, it's 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 for niche topics that you know can't make it on mainstream media because they're too small. I also feel that it's very intimate because you're you're having a conversation in somebody's ears. You you recorded it, you edited it, you packaged it, you put it together, and now it's out there and they're listening to it. And what I love about podcasts, they they both of my podcasts are basically a conversation. Uh, in, in the one show, it, it's it's me and Vin having a conversation with experts and our audience is eavesdropping. Uh, on the other show, a bipolar schizophrenic and a podcast, it's it's Michelle Hammer who lives with schizophrenia and me who lives with bipolar disorder, talking about life through the lens of living with mental illness. It's it's it, it's by mentally ill people for mentally ill people. You transition so quickly to that. So say the, the say the uh, say the title again because this was a perfect transition. I wanted to get into the, the uh, second podcast, which. You know, it was a perfect transition when you mentioned small niches. This is an incredible niche um, with two uh, two incredible podcasters, a bipolar, a schizophrenic, and a podcast. Correct? Yep, that's that's the title. And with co-host, I do notice that you always have a co-host there, Gabe. Uh, wondering <laughs> about that. Uh, just kidding. But uh, so Michelle Hammer, who lives with schizophrenia, is your co-host. That is that is correct. So tell that's us a bit about that show. So the let's go back a little bit, not to fall down a rabbit hole, but when when the Psych Central show was first conceived, we wanted to have a lot. We wanted to sort of balance between guests and lived experience conversations and interviewing people who have, you know, walked the walk and talked the talk. And, uh, you, you know, we sort of wanted to cover a lot of different things in one show. And we learned within the first year by polling the audience, et cetera, that we were dividing the audience. Uh, you know, the, the majority of the audience wanted to hear the guest expert. They were, they were in it for the subject. So shows that didn't have a guest that it was just me and Vin talking, they kept thinking, well, where's the expert that why is Gabe and Vin talking about it? They're, they're not doctors. They're not, you know, we, we researched the subject. We used, you know, psych central's massive database to get into the information. So I, I can assure you that all the information was accurate, but the audience felt pretty uneasy about the idea of, uh, why aren't you getting a guest to explain this to us? And that 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 was a real reasonable concern. But this meant that Vin and I lost our outlet. And by Vin and I, I mean Gabe lost his outlet to share his opinions, his lived experience, and also showcase other people who were living with mental illness. That just that just had to go away because it didn't fit into what the Psych Central Show podcast became. And, you know, another year would go by and I kind of, you know, I was like, well, how can I do this? You know, may maybe I can start a show where I just do all the talking. And I was like, yeah, that's that nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I didn't quite have all the pieces. And then enter Michelle Hammer. Michelle Hammer is she's younger than I am. She's a New Yorker. She's Jewish. She's a woman. She lives with schizophrenia. Uh, she's 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 an amazing just little advocacy package. She's an artist that lives in New York City and she makes her own art and she sells it in pop-up shops all over New York City. She also sells it online. And when I met her, something just clicked. I I just I just liked her. I felt comfortable with her. I I felt like I felt like she needed to be heard and uh, she was so different from me yet so much the same that that was the piece that I was missing. 
So I approached her about the idea about doing a show, um, you know, doing a podcast. And she said, and I quote, nobody listens to podcasts. They're stupid. And she said, no, I, I'm not kidding. She said, no, she, she flat out turned me down. And I was like, oh, well, I, I misread those signals. <laughs> that is and funny. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of licked my wounds for a couple of weeks and, uh, you know, she, she asked to do some other things. She's like, you know, well, can we, you know, we, we, we had done some other small collabs, you know, before I invited her to do the show so I could, you know, kind of get a, a feel for her, et cetera. But then one day she asked me, she's like, why did you want to do this podcast? Podcasts are stupid. And I said, I, I don't know why you think that. And I showed her the stats of the Psych Central show. I showed her the reach. I showed what the show, and she's like, wait a minute. That's, yeah, you know, when, when I was thinking podcast, I was thinking like, you, you know, some, some idiot on Facebook live that didn't edit it. Or I'm like, no, 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 just, you know, the, there's podcasts come in all shapes and sizes. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that people that don't edit their podcasts are bad, but you, you know, that that's, that's a different style. You know, I really believe in, in, in editing and, and having a subject matter and having a narrative form. And, you know, if you mess up starting over and, and, you, you know, having just a theme and, and an idea and, you know, and, and I said, it'd be back by psych central. And, uh, you, you know, I, I, I really think that it will catch on. And that convinced her, she thought that I just wanted to like aim a microphone at her and just talk for an hour and then throw it out <laughs> on the internet. And she was very uncomfortable with that. And she told me later on that we know a lot of advocates that do this, that, that that's their podcasting style. And she's like, I don't understand how people listen to them because they just have so many errors and mistakes and they're such low quality, et cetera. And I said, well, I understand why you were concerned. And I am really not judging other people's podcasts or, or anything like that. I don't, I don't mean that at all. Michelle just didn't understand. I didn't explain it well. So there was a miscommunication from the get on what Michelle thought a podcast was and what I actually envisioned the end product looking like. And once we bridged that gap, uh, we started moving full steam ahead. And, uh, you know, we, we started... Uh, a show for people with mental illness by people with mental illness. And we haven't looked back since. And so this show, no guests, or do you sometimes have guests? We, we have guests very infrequently. Uh, I would never say no guests because we've had a couple, but we're, we're exceptionally choosy about our guests. So how would you describe the show? I would describe the show as two people with mental illness talking about the world through the lens of mental illness. You know, there's a, you know, think about like a sports show. It's basically just a bunch of people who like sports talking about sports and giving their opinion on sports. And then other people who like sports like to listen to it so that they can hear somebody else's opinion on sports. That's, that's all sports shows are. I mean, I suppose they have some facts in there that they give you the sports score, but even then they'll tell you that, well, the, the Blue Jackets beat the Penguins and the Penguins were robbed. So even when they give you the fact, they still give you a lot of commentary with it. Um, you know, or the Penguins lost, but they deserved a better fate. I mean, how many times have we heard this? You, you know, so I wanted to design a show like that for subjects surrounding mental health and mental illness. I wanted to talk about how therapists ignore us or how hard it is to fill prescriptions or how, how difficult it was to go to a support group or how our moms don't understand us. Or, you know, I wanted to showcase some of the things that happened to us so that, you know, we get letters all the time. People are like, I listened to your show and that happened to me and I thought I was the only one. Of course you thought you were the only one. Nobody else was talking about it. Uh, you know, so many people have written to me and said, and I don't mean this as a callback, but 
I too urinated my bed. I thought I was the only one. And I'm like, no, I did it too. And so many people, because who shares that? Right. Yeah. Apparently Gabe and Michelle. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we, we, we give, uh, you know, hints and tips and suggestions. We talk about things like, look, it's okay to regret the things that you did when you were sick, but, but don't live in the past. You're not there anymore. So it, each, it just, does each show have a, a particular topic then? Yep. Each show okay. has a topic. I, I'm not saying that there are not tangents because <laughs> oh, there I'm are, sure. uh, but yes, we, we, we try to stick to a narrative, uh, uh, you, you know, idea and, and, and even the tangents, you know, and they relate to it or they end up getting cut out in, in the editing. Uh, we're starting to do more with questions from the audience. You know, now that we've built a following, uh, you know, we, we've been on the air for a year now. Uh, we, we've built a, a decent sized following. So we're starting to get like a lot more people emailing in uh, questions or topics or show ideas. Uh, we, we've gotten out more in conferences and things like that uh, to, to meet fans face to face. And, you know, they give us ideas and stuff. Uh, and it's really starting to take shape uh, beyond Gabe and Michelle and to Gabe and Michelle and our audience. Uh, and we just all move it back. And we are always on the lookout for, you know, unique guests. And but we're very choosy about our guests. You know, for example, the, the last guest we had was a woman who uh, she lives with schizophrenia and she went to the doctor and she said, I, I have this rash and I don't know what's causing it. And they told her that it that she was doing it to herself because she had schizophrenia. Uh, as it turns out, and they kept sending her home and the rash would keep getting worse and they kept blaming it on schizophrenia. Uh, as it turns out, this woman has made the national news because she has a variant of the plague virus. Uh, they don't know wow. how she got it, but they allowed it to get so bad because they were just ignoring her because they felt that she was self-harming or she was exaggerating. And it wasn't until she got other people involved and, and demanded tests and really advocated for herself uh, and brought in other people to advocate for her that they finally realized their error. And one of the reasons that we showcased her on the show is because, you know, that's a really extreme example, but how many times have people in our community living with mental illness gone to the doctor and they've been just told, well, it's probably depression, you, you know, and just maybe it is. I, I'm not saying that it's not often, you know, let's be honest, a lot of times the medical community is right. You, you know, it, it is a symptom of our mental illness, but what if it's not? Right. And how can we better work together to ensure that when it's not, we're not wandering around with some plague variant? Wow. That is, yeah. that is a, uh, yeah, it so speaks to, it for. speaks to people <laughs> being uh, discounted, right? Well, you've yeah. got a mental illness. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you, you know, and, but there was a great takeaway in that show. And the, the takeaway is advocate for yourself. You know, it, in, in this particular case, she brought her dad and she's like, look, I'm a 30 some year old woman. I had to bring my dad. But you know what? I wasn't going to let pride get in the way. I was getting sicker. And uh, she finally got the help that she needed by hook or by crook. Uh, and I think everybody learned a valuable lesson from this. And it's not designed to enrage. And, you know, we we complain about the medical establishment. But we're always very clear that complaining about something is not the same as disrespecting it. Uh, you, you know, I, I complain about my wife and, and I respect her, you know, I complain about my mom and I respect her. It, it, it's talking about things that bother you and airing your grievances is healthy. And so often people with mental illness are told that they're not allowed to air their grievances. And I don't think that's okay. So Michelle and I air them for you. And yeah. hopefully the people listening are like, thank you. 
thank you for giving us some proof that we're not the only ones. Yeah, that's and, awesome. Yeah, that's what the podcast is for. And listen, it's the same thing that your show does. You know, it's why I like it. It, it you, you know, I, I, I listen to other men talk about things that impact men. You know, sometimes it is hard to to be a man who's depressed because people tell us to, you know, well, be strong. You're scaring the kids or you're, you're is that the example that you want to set or my favorite? Don't be a girl, which is both misogynistic and offensive. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, You know, and we need to air that stuff. Right. Oh, and, yeah. And, without a doubt. You know, I saw a great ad for your show. I think it was on your website where you were both interviewing people around the term normal. And what does yes. normal mean yes. to you? And that was Define so funny. Normal. That was yeah. that was awesome, and it was put together just beautifully. We uh we we absolutely loved doing this because we we learned really early on in our own recoveries that we were fighting to be normal. Like like and remember, Gabe and Michelle didn't know each other back then. But Michelle was like, you know, I just kept going to the doctor so that I could be normal, so that I could be normal, so that I could be normal. And I was doing the exact same thing. I was trying to be normal. I was trying to be normal, but we also both realized that we didn't know what that was. So if you don't know what normal is, how do you know when you're successful? Right. How, how do you know when you've made it? How do you know when you've gotten there? And, uh, you know, that was just, that was just extraordinarily vital for us to realize that. And we showcased it by just asking as many people as we could to define normal. And, you know, just everybody came up with a different example and everybody was right. We, we made it very clear at the end of it that, yeah, everybody's right. Which also means everybody's wrong, which also means everybody's different, which also means that, hey, the answer really is define it how it's meaningful to you and strive toward it. Uh, and, and hopefully, you know, that started some conversations, you know, some probably, you know, deep philosophical conversations about what the hell we're actually fighting for when we're getting treatment for these illnesses or if nothing else. Maybe you just thought that Gabe and Michelle were idiots, and that's fun too. We're we're not against that. <laughs> well, it was really well done, very funny, and uh, I think there was in the end one person who claimed to be normal. The rest were like, "No, I'm not normal." Yeah. And yeah, what is normal? Just, I don't know what normal is. <laughs> it's actually, you know, that we interviewed a hundred. This is a behind the scenes. We interviewed a hundred people, and ninety nine people said that they were not normal, and one person <laughs> said that they were. Literally one. We didn't put all ninety nine X's on the thing because that would just, you know, be cumbersome <laughs> yeah, and take too right, long. So we put right. like ten people saying that they were that they were abnormal, and one person, literally one. It was one. so funny, so funny. So, you know, look, everybody's abnormal. So, yeah, we're all successful now. <laughs> so so uh, go to GabeHoward.com, hit the podcast button at the top, and check out that little uh, blurb before you actually go and listen to a bipolar, a schizophrenic, and a podcast. Awesome show. Uh, so, Gabe, hey, before we wrap up, I would love for you to share with our listeners any types of uh, pieces of wisdom or suggestions you have for anybody who's out there right now struggling with bipolar disorder, depression, another, or any other mental illness? The best advice that I have is to, to not give up. To not give up and to understand that, that all progress is progress. We, we tend to think of, of progress in terms of like giant things, but, but small things are progress too. You know, when I was really, really sick, getting out of bed and going to the bathroom was progress. Taking a shower was progress. Washing my hair, brushing my teeth, shaving. These are all examples of progress. And we need to reward ourselves for it. 
Because, you know, a little bit of success breeds a little more success and a little more and a little more and a little more. Reward yourself. I, I tell people all the time, just find any way to move forward and then find any way to be proud of yourself for it. And then it's just rinse, repeat. I, th that is the only method that, that I know. That is the method that I used and, and it worked. You know, on top of all of that, I mean, sincerely be open with your doctor. I know that bipolar disorder is a medical illness that needs medical intervention. I, I know that there's a lot of stuff on the internet about how it's a superpower, how you don't need to treat it or how doctors are liars. And, and listen, I, I, I have plenty of facts that support that that is not true. Please work with your doctor. Uh, please work with medical people. Please don't believe that you can beat this alone um, because I, I don't want you to be a casualty. I, I want you to have a good life. So if you're scared of the meds, they are scary, but work with your doctor to get the right ones. Yeah, I think uh, I love the piece of advice about take small steps and acknowledge them, right? And I think that's the one way to maintain or regain a piece of hope, right? The little, when you can start doing small things and recognize, I did get out of bed today. As damn hard as that was, I got myself out of bed or I'm, I got a shower, I cleaned up and recognize that that is a step towards recovery. It is. And it's, it's a big one, man. Yeah. I, you know, the, it's just like with defining normal. I don't know who decided which steps were big and which steps were small, but right. listen, just, 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 just to hell with that. They're all big. They're yeah. all huge. Absolutely. They're all meaningful. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for all the work and advocacy you do. I'm looking forward to seeing you uh, in April at Healthy Voices and uh, make sure that you stay healthy. Hey, thanks so much. Is this really going to be like a five hour podcast? I just, you're going to edit this, right? Because nobody wants to hear me that long. <laughs> I'll do some editing. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I look forward to seeing you at Healthy Voices. And uh, thank you for all that you do. It's, it's, it's much appreciated. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression File.